Hey everybody, it's Mark. Welcome or welcome back to the New Spring Church Podcast. Hey, at the end of this episode, please take a moment to subscribe to our YouTube channel and download our free New Spring app where you can access all of our recent message content. Actually, the app is the easiest way to share all this content with a friend, and it's the easiest way to keep up with everything going on around here at New Spring. But most importantly, I hope the following presentation inspires you to take your next step in your faith journey. Enjoy. I know I'm dating myself by putting it in this time frame, but when I was a teenager in the early 90s, there was this fad that sort of became a big deal in the Christian community, and it was really a big deal in our youth department here at this church I was growing up in at the time. Um, and it was these little colored bracelets that everybody started wearing. All of a Y'all remember these, right? It was a big deal. And it said WWJD, which stands for what? What would Jesus do? It was a big deal, right? Everybody had these, and we had, you know, and I remember in the youth department, the youth pastor was getting up and talking about how this was such a great idea, and I agree. I think it's a wonderful idea. I mean, you've got this bracelet on, and it says, what would Jesus do? So you think about it during the day um, when you're going through your normal life. I think that's fabulous. So don't think that I dislike the bracelets or I dislike WWJD. I think it's an awesome idea. I'm 100% for it. But I do remember at the time when they became a big thing, I was thinking to myself, and this is the kind of quirky, weird thought process I have. I thought to myself, you know, if you went and you talked to one of the disciples uh, who, you know, these are the guys that follow Jesus around all the time, the guys who knew Jesus better than anybody else. Uh, if you were to ask them, now, what is Jesus going to do in this, uh, this particular situation here that's come up? My hunch is one of the disciples would tell you, I don't know. Because Jesus was always doing stuff that nobody expected him to do. I mean, even the disciples, even the guys that followed him around all the time. I mean, nobody expected him to be healing sick people. Nobody expected him to walk on water. Nobody expected this carpenter to tell a bunch of fishermen exactly when and where to put their nets out to catch tons of fish. Nobody expected him to feed thousands of people with a little boy's sack lunch. You know, the the closest friends to Jesus, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, when Lazarus got really sick... Nobody expected Jesus not to show up. They all expected he would show up before Lazarus died and he would fix this. He would make it better. I mean, they had seen Jesus heal lots of people before, so they expected him to show up and then he didn't show up. That was unexpected. And then when he showed up three days later and demanded to be taken to the grave and he called Lazarus out of the grave and Lazarus came out of the grave, that was unexpected too. I mean, you gotta hand it to, this is, and forgive me for breaking a sentence, but this is where we are is that we know when we brand a series, The Unexpected Jesus, part of our minds, when you come to this series and you hear that we're doing this Unexpected Jesus, part of you probably thinking that what we're saying is that the world around us that doesn't know Jesus doesn't expect him to be the way that he is. And that's partially true. But part of this is that those of us who've known Jesus for a long time and have had a relationship with Jesus for a long time, Jesus is very unexpected in our lives a lot of times too. We don't really know exactly what he's gonna do in a situation and he so often surprises us. So that's why we're talking in this series about this really cool thing about the person of Jesus Christ is that he is so unexpected, but in the middle of these unexpected things that he does, his character remains the same. So what you're gonna see in these weeks that we spend together is that we learn about the character of Jesus within all of these 
things that we would never have expected him to do. And I think it's going to bless you because the one thing that will get a Christian on fire for God is to get close to the person of Jesus Christ. If you get close to Jesus, you will be an on-fire Christian, and our world needs on-fire Christians more than we've ever needed it before. So what this series is all about, especially ramping up into Easter, is we want to reintroduce you to Jesus and get you close to Jesus so you can see how awesome a person he is, and that will impact your daily life. And that's our goal, and we're going to spend a little bit of time doing that. And in today's talk, when we talk about what would Jesus do, I'm going to take you to this really interesting story in John. And it's interesting because it's so unexpected that it seems like some people who were developing compilations of the scriptures early on didn't want to include it because it seemed, it seemed too permissive. It seemed like Jesus was being too easy on people. And as a result, it almost didn't make it into our Bible. But it is there, and I want to show you how this particular story of the unexpected Jesus should warm our hearts, not only to the fact that we need to, we need to align ourselves with God, but also we need to align ourselves with his compassion. We don't just need to align ourselves with his righteousness, but we need to align ourselves with his compassion as well. So that's what we're going to be talking about today. John chapter 8 is where we're going to spend most of our time. If you have your Bible and you like to look up and follow along in the passage or your electronic reading device, John chapter 8, that's where we're going to spend most of our time. So we pick up the story. It says, at dawn he appeared again. This is Jesus. Jesus appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him and he sat down to teach them. And this is normal. This is what would happen if you had a religious leader. They would go into the temple. They would go to the outer court. They would find a comfortable place to sit down. Then they would sit down and they would start to teach. And they would start to teach before anybody was gathered there listening. And people would just start to congregate around and listen to them teach. Often there, were more than one, there was more than one teacher teaching in the outer courts. Now, one of the challenges with this is that if you were... Um, if you're a religious teacher, it can sometimes start to feel a little bit like a popularity contest where you're trying to teach people, but they're gravitating to listen to some, somebody else. This was especially a problem with Jesus because when Jesus spoke, everybody wanted to listen. He didn't talk the way the other religious, religious leaders talked. He was different. And so people would crowd around him. That was strike one as far as the religious leaders were concerned because they felt like they were losing a little bit of a popularity contest to Jesus. It wasn't a popularity contest. The problem was they were on the wrong road and Jesus was on the right road. And so people were gravitating towards him. But there was another group that was, you know, religious. They were super religious, but I'm talking about a little bit different group than the ones I was just talking about. These are the Pharisees. Now, if you read through the gospel, you'll notice this ongoing tension, almost a battle, really, between Jesus and the Pharisees. And certainly the Pharisees were very instrumental in eventually putting Jesus on the cross. But the Pharisees were super church people. Have you ever known a super church person? They know how to cross all the religious T's and dot all the religious I's, and they're really good at uh, liturgy. They're really good at, um, at religious exercises, whatever uh, happens to be available to them. They do them very well. They know how to dress the part. They know how to act the part. Certainly the Pharisees dress different than everybody else, so they would know, people would know that they're the religious superheroes, right? They, they acted different. They went to church multiple times a day. They made a big show of their religion, right? So this was their... Their idea of religion had become that uh, it was about image. It was about respect. 
The whole reason they were at all interested in God was to be respected by others and to have other people look up to them. So these were the people that were very, very prominent in the religious scene when Jesus um, shows up. By the way, you do understand that Jesus is not about a religion. Jesus is not here to support a religion. As a matter of fact, religion has messed up more people on a legitimate path to God than anything else ever has, right? But the problem is that if Jesus gets close to religion, it will always showcase the problems with religion. So when Jesus got close to the Pharisees, it spotlighted things people hadn't noticed before. And as a matter of fact, Jesus said about the Pharisees that while they looked good on the outside and they were great religious posers, I mean, they would go to the front of the church every time they show up and they would pose and they would pray in front of everybody, make sure everybody's looking at me pray so I can make sure they know I'm real religious, right? And yet Jesus said, but on the inside, you're filthy, you're rotten. And the thing about it was the way that the Pharisees made sense of this, right? In psychology, we call this cognitive dissonance. It means that I have these two things in my life that, I, that don't match and I somehow have to make a way to make it work. So on, the, on one hand, they knew that they were not right with God because they knew their private life. On the other hand, though, they knew that they were projecting a religious image. Somehow they had, a, 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 had to find a way to make it all work. And so the way that they made it work was they created a bunch of religious exercises that by doing these exercises, it made them feel better about themselves and it made other people look up to him. And these are the people with whom Jesus had the strongest clash when he's on the scene. As a matter of fact, Jesus said something to them that I think is probably one of the most scathing rebukes he said to anybody. He said, you're not getting into heaven and you're making it harder for other people to get into heaven. I think that's about as as tough a rebuke as he gave anybody. So now what we have is Jesus is teaching. He's teaching in the temple and, and teaching about the kingdom of heaven. That's pretty much what he was always doing. Uh, when he was teaching, and the teachers of the law and the Pharisees bring in a woman caught in adultery, and they made her stand before the group. Now, this is probably the most awkward moment in church you can possibly imagine. I've grown up in church, and my, you know, my, my dad and my grandpa were both pastors, so church is familiar to me. I've seen some awkward things happen in church, but this is beyond the pale, right? They find this lady in the act of adultery, yank her out of this bed, and pull her, probably naked, into the church lobby in front of Jesus and everybody else, and now they're going to confront this woman's sin with Jesus and everybody else. And here's why. Here's why. Well, let me go ahead and finish reading the, let me finish reading this and then we'll, we'll catch up. They say, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? And they asked that question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. Why was it a trap? Well, the Pharisees were listening to Jesus teach more than anybody else. They, that was one of those, you know, keep your friends close and your enemies closer kind of thing. So they were really paying attention to everything that Jesus said. And if you pay attention to what Jesus said in the Gospels, you're going to notice two themes. And you cannot divorce Jesus from either of these themes because they're over and over and over in the scripture. And that is compassion on one side and justice on the other. Jesus continues to talk about the just nature of God, the righteous nature of God. He talks about righteousness, and he makes it clear that there are standards for living, that God has put guidelines in the universe for how we should live our lives, and that those guidelines matter, and that they have consequences. But on the other side, he would talk about God's unfailing love, and his compassion, and his forgiveness. And so I think what the Pharisees thought and I could be wrong, but I've experienced a little bit of this pushback in my own spirit sometimes when I see these two themes right next to each other like that. And that is this thought that it's a lovely thought, but you can't have both. 
there's this sort of human tendency to believe that we have to compromise on one or the other. If you have unfailing love, then you better be ready to compromise on the whole justice thing. You better be ready to compromise on the whole righteousness thing. But if righteousness and, and, and rules and, and justice is uncompromising, then you're going to have to compromise on the unfailing love bit. You can't have both. Pragmatically, in, in, you know, in situation, you can't have both. And I think that's what the Pharisees had been thinking all along, and they've been trying to figure out, how do we show everybody that this is just an idealist who doesn't know what he's talking about? We get it. We get that in the real world that doesn't work. And by the way, you should know, human beings, we tend to skew one direction or the other. And as a matter of fact, if you think about people in your life and if you think about yourself, you'll probably realize that we do tend to either lean one way or the other. So some of us definitely lean towards the side of justice and we're definitely rule followers. And we believe the rest of the world should be rule followers and we are very prepared to be the police to make sure everybody else is the rule follower, right? How many of y'all are firstborns? So y'all know what I'm talking about, right? I'm a firstborn. And the reason that firstborns are rule followers is because our parents still had energy to parent when we were born, you know? And uh, second child comes along, they're like, is it really worth the battle? And by the time the last child comes along, last child's just floating along on a pink cloud, you know, basking in mom and dad's love, you know? But, But we, we can get this overinflated sense of justice, right? I've talked about this before in this, uh, in this room about a pop machine mentality of life. Nothing is more aggravating to me than to put your dollar, however much it is now, four or five dollars, in the pop machine, press the button for your Coke, and you don't get anything out, right? And then, as you're walking away, somebody comes up to the Coke machine, and they press the button and don't put a dollar in, they get your Coke, that has got to be the worst day, right? But this is the thing, right? We have this pop machine mentality of life. If I do what I'm supposed to do, I should get what I'm supposed to get. And if somebody does something wrong, they should get the consequence of that. We feel like there's this need for justice in the fabric of the universe. And you know what that leads to? That leads to anger because this is not a fair world. You're going to constantly be feeling upset and angry. And here's the other problem, and this is bigger. The other problem with skewing on the side of justice is that we forget how much forgiveness it takes for us to have any good standing with God. What does the Lord's Prayer say? Forgive us our trespasses as we do what? We forgive those who trespass against us. There's a, there's a certain extent to which God needs to keep reminding us, in case you would tend to compromise on compassion, just remember how much compassion it takes for us to be in a right standing with with God, right? So that's the problem with leaning towards justice. On the other hand, a lot of people will lean towards the compassion side, and what they will say is, you know, if God is as loving as he says, then he must not be as serious about right and wrong as he says he is. He must not, the righteousness thing must not be such a big deal, because if he really has unfailing love and forgiveness for people, then the truth is, probably truth is really relative, and, and you know, there really isn't a, a firm right or wrong unless somebody's being hurt. You know, if somebody's being hurt, then that's definitely wrong, but but stuff where there's no victim, I, you know, there's really no right or wrong. And our culture has gotten super squishy on this point, right? So, uh, and the funny thing about it is not, none of us have been asking ourselves about the moral slide, right? So if we're so correct about morality today, then where, where were we 20 years ago and where are we going to be 20 years from now? If we keep going on the path that we are now, then does that mean that we're going to be just as wrong 20 years from now as we were 20 years ago? This is the issue, right? It's a non-starter. If you end up leaning toward compassion, the problem is you're going to be in a spaghetti mess of logic that won't work out. 
As a matter of fact, some of the people that I know that profess to be incredibly open-minded, incredibly accepting, are militantly against anybody who doesn't think the way they do. So it doesn't work. So you have, you have this divide of people, and they understand that. So the Pharisees are smart. They know that when they have this crowd around Jesus, some of the people in that crowd are going to be over on this side, and it's going to be, you know, is it that big a deal that she was caught in adultery? I don't really feel like it is a big deal. You know, two consenting adults, whatever they want to do in, their, in the privacy that they have. And then there are going to be a lot of people there who are erring on justice who are saying, yeah, stone the woman. And they know that no matter what he says, he loses. On top of that, they know that he's been preaching about compassion and justice, right? And so the fact that he's been preaching about compassion and justice means that if he says, no, 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 don't stone her, forgive her, then they're going to say, well, then who made you king of, like, how, how is it that you just basically said Moses is wrong? Didn't you say you came to fulfill the law? So how are you saying that the law is wrong? On the other hand, if he says, yeah, go ahead and stone her, then they're going to say, what about all this unfailing love and compassion you're always talking about? And on top of that, they could get Jesus in trouble with Rome because no Jewish citizen had the right to claim that somebody should be executed. Now that they're under Rome's authority, that would have to happen from Rome. I mean, these guys have played this chess game out. They've looked at every single move that Jesus has, and as far as they're concerned, it's checkmate. He has nowhere to go on this. How did they get so lost? And how as a culture have we gotten so lost? We've lost track of what God is really like. If you ever want to read what could easily be an epitaph on the tombstone of 21st century America, just go to Romans 1 and read Romans 1. It's scary how accurate it is about where we are in America. But I'm just going to show you a little slice of Romans 1. It says, they knew God, but they wouldn't worship him as God or even give him thanks. And, as a, and they began to think up foolish ideas of what God was like. See, that's what happens. We go, you know what? You can't be full of compassion and justice at the same time. Pragmatically, that doesn't work. So we start to craft a God that fits our view. If we skew towards justice, we start to craft a God that's about rules and, and that's about righteousness, but doesn't care about people so much, or we start to craft a God that is all about people and does not have righteous standards. And that's what the Bible's saying here. They started to make up foolish ideas of what God was like, and as a result of that, their minds became dark and confused, which is where we are right now in our culture. Claiming to be wise, they instead became utter fools. The word from which we uh, get wise here in the Greek is sophos. It's the, the root word from which we get sophisticated. Claiming to be sophisticated. I remember some time ago I was reading a news article. There was a, a moral issue that was very important at the time in the legislature and the courts. Several politicians had switched their position on this issue. And a news uh, reporter was, was trying to sort of poll these politicians to find out why have you changed your position. And he said the most frequent answer he got was, well, my position has evolved on this. I have an evolving position. That's what the scripture is talking about, claiming to become sophisticated. We evolve beyond God's righteousness. We evolve beyond what God says are standards for living. But it says claiming to be sophos, claiming to be sophisticated, they instead became utter moros, which stands for moron, right? Claiming to be sophisticated, they became stupid, which is really where we are in the world in which we are right now. So anyhow, they've got this compassion and justice thing. The Pharisees have created a God for themselves who's not much into compassion, but who's very much into justice, which by the way, none of them were prepared to be judged by such a God. 
But what's interesting is this, right? So if you go back to Romans 1, and I, and I don't have the whole passage here. We just talk about, they began to think up of foolish ideas of what God was like. But it starts to talk about how they created idols. And, you know, idols were these little carved things out of stone or wood that they would worship and they would put them in their house and they were representatives of God and you'd have an idol for rain and you'd have an idol for prosperity and an idol for crops and idol for, for health and you would pray to those different idols and so forth and this was a huge offense to God. Um, and we don't really have that very much in our culture. We don't really create idols and, and pray to idols. And yet, it's important for us to understand that our, we have a culture of idolatry. We may not create the same kinds of idols, but we have a culture of idolatry. What idolatry is all about, let's, let's get this really straightforward and simple. What idolatry is all about, it is trying to shrink God down to a manageable size. It is trying to create a God that you can own, and it's trying to use God for your purposes. See, there is a human desire, and I don't understand, but I get it. I get it, but I don't know where it comes from. But there is a human desire to somehow shrink God down to something manageable. Some of the idols that we have from antiquity are teeny tiny little things. And you, you think of the, con, the, the, the contrast between how big God really is and how the representation that we try to make of him. It, somehow we want to make God smaller, something that we can control. And then something that we can own. People would say, my idols. So we see this in the scripture. People would talk about the idols that they own. When they say, my God, they didn't mean my God in the sense that this is the God to whom I'm loyal. These, they meant these are the gods that I own. And as a culture, we have a lot of that going on now. I have people that will tell me, well, my God wouldn't say that. My God wouldn't do that. My God, doesn't, my, my God would not draw a hard line in the sand there. Do we understand none of us owns a God, Right? Like, we can act like we do, we can make a little representation of God and carry it around in our pocket, and a lot of us are carrying around a little invisible God with us. This is my God, I take him out on, on, on the weekend, I take him out when I hang out with my Christian friends, but if this particular God doesn't fit with the rest of my life, I just sort of mold him and make him into the God that I want to make him into. But you understand, God is not up for being molded, he's not up for being shaped, he's not replicated, he's not shrunk, he, you, cannot, you cannot create a God to own. God owns the universe, so we, we have to get some idea in our head that God is God and I am not and I am either with his program or I'm against his program. So this is where the Pharisees were. They created a God that was all about justice but didn't have compassion. And they were using this question as a trap. That's what the Bible says. So then we have to ask the question, what would Jesus do? And what Jesus did was so controversial, as I said, there were some people who didn't even want to put it in the Bible. They were trying to trap him into saying something. But Jesus stooped down and wrote in the dust with his finger. Have no idea what he wrote. Have no idea. But I will tell you this. If you want to see people get into a big argument, just walk into a seminary and ask a bunch of seminary students what Jesus wrote in the dust. Because they all think they know. And it would be a very spirited discussion, right? I haven't got a clue. I, you know, if you pinned me down and said, you know, make your best guess, I've always kind of thought maybe it was the Ten Commandments. Um, and the reason that I think it was the Ten Commandments, one is because Jesus is going to confront them with their own sin, and that would be a good way of doing it. The other thing, though, is that you'll notice that even as he's writing, they keep pressuring him. Hey, you got to give us an answer. you got to give us an answer. So nothing that he wrote in the dust was anything new to them. Whatever he was writing was something they had seen before. So I, that's my guess. But again, I have no idea. So he wrote in the dust with his finger. They kept demanding an answer. So he stood up again and said, all right, but let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. Well, that's a tough one. Everybody there had sinned except for one person. And that would be Jesus. 
And it could be that he's confronting their lifetime of sin. Certainly, the Gospels are clear that these guys had lifestyles that did not match the image. But you know what? It could be a lot more recent than that. He might be confronting the sin they were in the middle of right at that moment. I want to be genteel about how I say this because we may have young people in the room or young people watching, but because the penalties for adultery were so steep, whether we're talking about the Jewish penalties for adultery or the Roman penalties for adultery, because they were so steep, there was a concern that a person might be accused of adultery when they actually weren't. So the requirements to be accused of adultery were so high, there had to be at least two witnesses, and both of those witnesses had to see, see things happen that were profoundly specific to make sure that this was accurate. So, folks, I don't know how to, I don't know how to figure this, but this was a trap. I really think these guys were intending to catch this person. And the, the reason why that's an even bigger issue is that in the Jewish law, because of God's nature of love and grace and not wanting to see somebody make a mistake. In the, in the Jewish law, it says if you see a person who's getting ready to sin, you should confront them about that sin before they commit that sin. So here's the problem. These guys w- waited so that she wouldn't know and the guy wouldn't know that they were there until they were in the middle of doing something that they shouldn't have been doing so that they could catch them and haul them in. But in doing so, they themselves had violated what the rules were. And it's worse than that. Pharisees come in, you know, waving the law of Moses. Moses says we should stone a woman like this. What do you think? Well, if you actually look at the law of Moses, it says that if you find a man and a woman committing adultery, that both the man and the woman are to be put to death. So here's my question. Where's the guy? Where's he at? By not bringing him, they've committed a sin. Could be that they have a very sexist point of view and it's, you know, well, she shouldn't have done this, but guys will be guys. That would have been sinful in and of itself. But I gotta tell you, I think it's worse than that. And, you know, I may have to apologize when I get to heaven for being wrong about this, but I truly believe it was probably somebody they knew. The guy was probably somebody that they knew. I think that's how they knew to catch the woman doing this. I think they they kind of caught wind of this, but I don't think they wanted him to get in trouble because they knew the guy. But it was perfectly acceptable for them to get her in trouble because they didn't care about her. All right, whoever hasn't sinned, throw the first stone. None of them qualified. Then he stooped down again and wrote in the dust. And when the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest, until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. So keep this in mind. The only people who've left are the accusers. The crowd is still here. Jesus is still here. The woman is still here. Then Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, where are your accusers? Isn't that a beautiful question? Every once in a while I have a Christian tell me, you know, Jonathan, I, I'm reading the Bible about the fact that someday I'm going to have to give an account for my life that scares me because I've made so many bad mistakes and I want to follow God and I want to do right by God, but I'm scared about what it's going to be like to give an account for the really stupid stuff I've done over the years and it really bothers me. You do realize that once you belong to Jesus, there are no accusers in the room. Your past remains but there is no one who will accuse you before God. As a matter of fact, instead of an accuser before God, the Bible says you have an advocate before God. Instead of a prosecuting attorney, you're going before the throne of heaven with a defense attorney. And his blood and his broken body on the cross is paid for everything you've ever done wrong, past, present, or future. So you don't need to fear giving an account for your life because when they open up the Lamb's book of life, it's gonna say, when they look up Jonathan's name, it's gonna say, see the record of Jesus Christ. 
Where are your accusers? Nobody qualifies to accuse you, not even one of them. And she says, no, Lord. By the way, it's very important that you understand her attitude right now. Because if her attitude was, I didn't do anything wrong. I don't know why everybody's making such a big deal out of this. It would have been a whole different story. The story would have gone completely differently. The word Lord there, we put it in such a religious context. But what it really meant in this case, it was a term of deference. It was a term for boss, person in charge. You're in charge here. No, none of them are still here, and I'm submitting to your authority. And he says, well, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Keep in mind, he had a right to. He was the perfect person in the room. Do you know what is so wonderful about Jesus? Every once in a while somebody's saying, why are you so hung up on Jesus? And, and this whole business of having a personal relationship with Jesus, and, and you get something out of that, I don't get that. Do you understand that what is so powerful about having a relationship with Jesus is because the one person who had the power to condemn you, his attitude was not to condemn you, but his attitude was to reconcile you with God, and he was willing to do whatever it took to make that happen. So that's why we love Jesus, is because Jesus has said, I will do anything to make sure that we can have a relationship. But his attitude could have been different. His attitude could have been to condemn us, just as it could have been to condemn this woman, but that's not who he is. He is compassion and justice at the same time. Well, what can we take from this story? I think Jesus was trying to tell this lady three things. I think the first thing Jesus was trying to tell her is your life isn't over. Pharisees were perfectly happy for her life to be over, whatever it takes. For them, it was the principle of the thing. If you become obsessed with justice, you will impale yourself on the principle of the thing. Everything will be about the principle of the thing, but people won't matter. And this lady didn't matter to them. They didn't care about her. She was expendable. Her life could be over as far as they were concerned. As a matter of fact, as far as they were concerned, her life should be over based off of what she had done. Do you know what the interesting thing about it is? Jesus is far more interested about the potential of your future than he is about the details of your past. Oh, he knows the details of your past. But Jesus knows something about you that nobody else knows. See, I will never know how far you could go if you were truly on fire for God for the rest of your life. I can't, I can't project that. I can't predict that. But you know, Jesus knows exactly how far you can go, and he knows exactly what you would be able to do. So his enthusiasm for your potential is beyond what you could ever imagine. And so that's why he's interested. He doesn't want her life to be over. He wants, he, he wants her life to start right now. Go and sin no more. Well, that's the second thing. Your future starts now. Jesus is the only person who can truly tell you your future starts now. Let's talk for a minute about repentance, because repentance is all over the Gospels. You see, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. You see, repentance talked about over and over in the Gospels. And here's what repentance is all about. Because the word repent really means to change your mind. So what happens is we're walking in a bad direction, you know, metaphorically. We're walking in this bad direction. We're causing pain for ourselves. We're causing pain for other people. We're experiencing consequences that are unpleasant because of the bad decisions that we're making. And the farther we go down this bad road, the more that road tells us that we're going down a bad road. And eventually we come to our senses and we have to make a choice. Am I going to continue going down this road or am I going to turn around? If I turn around, that is what the Bible calls repentance. It means to change my mind and say, I was going down this road, but that wasn't paying off and that was bad for me and it was bad for other people, I'm going to turn around and I'm going to go down the right road. Here's the problem with that. The problem is when you repent, you are going to have to walk every mile you went in the wrong direction in reverse before you can get back to the starting mark. And that's hard. 
don't know if anybody's been through that, but you know it's hard to walk back over that territory that you made in the wrong direction. And the hardest part of it is that a lot of people will not make that journey with you because they felt betrayed by you or they feel hurt by you and they're not ready to trust yet and that's okay because human beings cannot do what God does. They cannot read your heart, they cannot read your mind. All they can do is listen to your words and watch your behavior and it takes longer to build trust that way. But here's what's so cool. If you truly have a change of mind and a change of heart, guess who does know that it's real? Jesus knows that it's real. And that means that from the moment that you make a turnaround, even if your spouse can't go with you yet, even if your kids can't go with you yet, even if other people who feel like they've, you've let them down can't go with you yet, it means that from the moment you turn around, Jesus is walking with you every single step. So all that mileage that you have to cover back in the right direction, that you went in the wrong direction, you're not alone doing that. You walked away from Jesus alone, but the moment you turn back toward Jesus, he starts walking with you. That's how compassion and justice meet together. Your future starts now. Talking to somebody in this room who say, you know, Jonathan... I made some bad choices and they've really hit the fan and now I'm in this situation where I feel like people are shaming me and I just, I just don't feel like I'm ever going to get back to where things were. Good, you don't want to be back to where things were, do you? You want to be better than where things were. And you have a God who will help you get there. You just make that turnaround and say, my future starts today. Maybe not everybody can make the journey with me yet, but Jesus is making the journey with me starting right now. Starting right now. Go and sin no more. Here's the third thing, and this is one that's going to be a bridge too far for some people. Your choices need to change. Some people would see this story and think, how archaic. Two consenting adults? Whatever, you know? I mean, how archaic that there would be. I mean, it's so funny that in certain areas... Uh, that have to do with moral issues. We're very, very, we draw very straight lines, but as a culture, we've suddenly basically gotten rid of all the lines that have to do with sexuality. As long as it's not hurting anybody, as long as two consenting people, whatever, right? And yet, here's the deal. If that's your position, you have every right to that position. I just don't know how you're going to square it with the Bible. So I think you can either hold that position and say that the Bible doesn't matter, or you can say that the Bible does matter and is the authority for life, and then I can't hold that position. But I think you're going to have to confront the incompatibility of those two things. And so ultimately, I think it's reasonable that some of us, especially in the world that we've grown up in, are thinking, wow, this is kind of a surprise. But the thing is, Jesus, this is part of the unexpected Jesus. As he says, as much as I have love and compassion, I also draw a firm line. Go and sin no more. For some people, they would say, how dare he call it a sin? Well, think about this. Sin is just anything that walks us away from the direction of a perfect God. So God has a right to define what his character is. And he has a right to tell us what behaviors take us away from his character. That's all right. That's reasonable. And what he's saying is, when you do these things, it puts distance between us, and that's not a good thing. It's not because God is up there in the sky wanting to say, I want to be a dictator and decide what people get to do and what they don't get to do and who I don't like and who I do like has nothing to do with that. God is describing to us what his character is, and he's saying, if you want to be close to me, these are the ways that you can do it. But if you want to walk away from me and distance yourself, this is how you would do that. He has a right to write the owner's manual for life. After all, he invented it. 1 John 1.8 says this, if we claim we have no sin, we're only fooling ourselves and not living in the truth. 
But if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all wickedness. If we claim we have not sinned, we are calling God a liar and showing that his word has no place in our hearts. Do you notice what's happening here? He's saying justice. You can't claim that there is no right and wrong and you can't claim that you're not wrong. On the other hand, though, if you're willing to agree with God that he's right, even when you mess up, God stands there ready to forgive you and for you to have that relationship restored. That is where compassion and justice meet. The problem is that no human being can make that happen. I can't be perfect, so I can't execute justice, and I can't forgive anybody for what they've done wrong, so I can't be the arbiter of compassion. Only through Jesus Christ can I give somebody the compassion they deserve, and only through Jesus Christ can real justice be met with forgiveness because of the sacrifice that he made on the cross. If I want to learn how to love people, I have to love people through the channel of Jesus Christ. He says, I'm writing this to you so that you will not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate. We have a defense attorney who pleads our case before the Father. He is Jesus Christ, the one who is truly righteous. He himself is the sacrifice that atones for our sins, and not only our sins, but the sins of all the world. What the Bible here is saying is that because Jesus has paid the penalty on the cross, justice is his domain. And because he has earned the right to forgive us and cleanse us of our sins, compassion is his domain. So you cannot ask him to compromise on compassion because as far as you go into compassion, you're going to find Jesus. And you cannot have him compromise on justice because as far as you go into justice, you'll find Jesus. But the good news, my friend, is so long as we're following Jesus, we're okay because Jesus is vouching for us. So what can you take home today? from this story. I think the first one is that Jesus cares about your future regardless of your past. I don't care what story you read in the Gospels, but Jesus doesn't rake people over the coals for their past. He always wants to talk about what happens today and tomorrow. The new start. Second thing is, God does have a righteous standard and what you do matters. We know this. Our culture is pushing back so hard against the fact that there is a real right and wrong and that there is truth and what we do matters. But the truth is, if we just allow logic to seep in for a minute, we'll realize that that's true. Our culture wants to create its own version of truth, but it still wants to wield truth. It wants to create its own version of justice, but it still wants to wield justice. It wants to create its own version of right and wrong, but it still wants to wield right and wrong. So ultimately, we're either going to give our culture the right to define those standards, or we're going to give God the right to define those standards. Finally, through Jesus, there is a way forward. I love this verse in Psalm 85. It says, unfailing love and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed it's so important because we wouldn't normally put those two things together. They're sort of like water and oil, they just don't mix. So we think of peace and righteousness as not being compatible, but through Jesus Christ it is compatible. That's how a fallen man has a way back home to a relationship with God the Father. We have seen his glory, John says, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. I don't know where this meets you today. Maybe you're in a spot where What you need today is the conviction of the Holy Spirit to say there's something that I'm doing that's violating God's standard and I need to to think that through. Here's what I'm, I'm gonna tell you is that Jesus is as far into justice as you can find. It's good for us to confront ourselves with the things that we need to change. All of us have things we need to change and it's good for us to confront ourselves with that. But as you have that conversation with yourself, remember that as far as you go into compassion, you will find Jesus there. Jesus is not in the business of raking you over the coals about your past. He's in the business of nudging you into your new future. And that's what he's all about. I don't know who I'm talking to in this room. 
I just need, I just need one more minute. I know who I'm talking to in this room. When this woman was at the temple, that was the place of her condemnation. I'm talking to somebody in this room that your experience in church has been that that's where you go to feel condemned. Hopefully that's never been the case at New Spring, but you've had an experience of being in church and that's where you felt the most rejected by God, the most condemned, the most set aside. That's where you felt like people told you your life was over, that you'd made irreconcilable mistakes. But Jesus did something that day. He reminded us that the church is supposed to be a lighthouse in a hospital. It's supposed to be a place for people who are willing to come and say, I'm broken, I've made mistakes, I don't know how to do this, but I'm going to try to follow God the very best that I can. I'm going to try to do what God has called me to do. I don't know what it is. I'm still working through it. I'm a work in progress. That's why at New Spring, we're, you hear my dad, myself, my brother, others who speak up here, we talk about our own flaws and failings because the thing is we're just on a journey with you. We're in the same boat that you are. We're just trying every day to figure out the next step, the next right thing, and following Jesus. And if you're here today and you say, I walked into church worried that I was going to hear a message of condemnation, but what I think I'm hearing is that Jesus loves me enough to want me even regardless of what I've done. That's right. And this is your moment. It's not, a, it's not for everybody else. Right now, this moment is for you. If you're in this room and you would say, I want to have a relationship with Jesus because I know now that he's not, he's not here to rake me over the coals about my past. He wants to help me find my future. And if that's you in this room, I want to help you start that relationship with Jesus Christ. And here's what I'm going to do. In, the min- in just a minute, I'm going to say the words to a real simple prayer. I'm going to say it in little chunks so you have time to think about it and follow along if you want. You don't have to say this out loud. You can say this silently in your heart to God. But if you do, it'll be settled once and for all. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes for just a second. Here's that prayer. Dear Jesus, thank you that you love me. Thank you that you died and came back to life for me. I know I do wrong things. I know I can't get to heaven on my own. Today I accept your free gift of heaven and forgiveness. I can't wait for my future to start. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you look this way just for a second? If you just prayed that prayer, this was the most earth-shattering moment of your life. And we want to help you start that new journey with Jesus. So you can text prayed to 97,000 or just go tell somebody at one of the welcome centers that you prayed with me and they have a little gift box they'd like to give you. Thanks so much for being here with us this week. Next week, we'll continue on with the unexpected Jesus. Once again, thanks for listening. If you live in Wichita, the surrounding area, we'd love for you to engage with us in one of our weekend services. For directions, service times, and information about our incredible kids and student environments, visit us at newspring.org. One more time, newspring.org.